0: Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is Preston jordan Lim. Preston is an assistant professor at the Charles Widger School of Law at Villanova University in Pennsylvania and a former clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada. In today's episode, we sit down to discuss his forthcoming article in the third volume of the Dicey Law Review on the originalism of F.R. Scott. Preston, welcome to Runny Mead Radio. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to have you on the podcast today. And we're here to talk about your recent article for the Supreme Court Law Review. And that's going to be coming out shortly in the third volume of the Dicey Law Review, which is called The Originalism of F.R. Scott. So let's start by talking about Professor Scott, the man himself. And let's talk about Professor Scott as a legal scholar because he's someone who I imagine many law students uh, entering law school today would likely be unacquainted with. So can you, for their benefit, if they're uh, tuning in and listening, can you tell us a little bit about the key milestones of Professor Scott's career, as well as what his core convictions were? Sure. So F.R. Scott, uh, you know, one of the most accomplished
1: Canadian public intellectuals of the 20th century, That's, that's how I would, Uh, describe him. Chances are, if you're in law school, you might not be too acquainted with his legal thought or his writing, uh, but you might have heard his name. There are a number of constitutional law prizes. I think uh, there's one at McGill named after him, and there are endowed chairs named after him as well. Uh, So certainly, even if we're not tremendously acquainted with his work in the 21st century, uh, the name uh, should maybe ring a bell. In terms of big career accomplishments. Uh, You know, he really was involved in so many different domains in Canadian life. And this is one of the points that I make in the article. So to give one example, he was very politically involved. He was a socialist. So he was one of the key people who founded the uh, CCF, which was the predecessor to today's NDP. Mm Mm-hmm. He, as part of uh, one of these key people within the CCF movement, actually uh, played a major role in drafting the Regina Manifesto, uh, which was a statement of the mission and vision of the CCF. So that was him on the political front. Uh, some of you might have heard of him because of his poetry. He was a very well-decorated poet. His father, in fact, had been a poet as well. His uh, father was nicknamed the poet of the Lorenzid. And so he kind of had this love for poetry in his DNA. Uh, And then, you know, maybe the last aspect I'll focus on, of course, Mm -hmm. as a legal thinker, uh, he was probably most famous within the legal domain as becoming a Dean of McGill Law and as serving on the McGill Faculty of Law for many, many years. And that is the position in which
0: he published a lot of the writings that we're uh, going to talk about today. So why don't we dive in then and let's start talking about the writings and some of the ideas uh, that he advanced, because in this paper that you've got coming out soon in Dicey, you prevent, you advance a really provocative uh, thesis. And you note that while Professor Scott is often remembered for his work as a nationalist, as a socialist, as a civil libertarian, that he is, quote, every inch the originalist, end quote. Why do you think that members of the Canadian legal Academy would be loath to apply this label to professor Scott?
1: Right. It's a great question, Chris, and I think I'll respond by making a couple points. So first off, you know, originalism has become a very charged label here in Canada as it is in the United States. Uh, And I think one important point is to maybe get to the definition of originalism, because in my view, originalism doesn't actually incorporate a specific political orientation. Mm -hmm. Originalism is a method Mm -hmm. of constitutional interpretation. So there are various definitions that have been given. One of the ones that I like is uh, the one that I include in the paper and it's by Jack Balkin, who's a constitutional theorist at Yale law. And he writes that originalism in its various forms maintains one, that some feature of the constitution is fixed at the time of adoption. Two, that this fixed element cannot be altered except through subsequent amendment. And three, that this fixed element matters for correct interpretation. So, you know, we'll get into a discussion of originalism as we, uh, you know, ca- kind of as Chris and I unpack my paper, but one thing I would note at the outset is Balkan's definition has to do with interpretation. It doesn't have to do with the results necessarily of constitutional interpretation. And so I think one lesson that I'd like to dispel people of is that originalism naturally and always will result in outcomes that we associate with the conservative political movement. Mm -hmm. That was not the case with FR Scott, at least. And the second point that I'll get on the table is, uh, you know, Chris, you mentioned how this is a provocative argument. I think it is. But one other point that I'd like to make is that F.R. Scott certainly wasn't alone in his advocacy of originalism. So in this paper alone, I mentioned how F.R. Scott derived a lot of his approach to the Constitution from his own teacher at McGill Law, uh, Herbert A. Smith. He was an Englishman who taught at McGill for some time and then uh, went back to the United Kingdom. But really, there was a whole wave of constitutional thinkers, especially during the Great Depression that thought in originalist terms uh, and basically made this common unifying critique that the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was Canada's final Court of Appeal at this time, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially um, turned the Constitution on its head by finding in favor of provincial power over federal power.
0: It's, it's a really interesting uh, topic of discussion, you know, and obviously it's one that has been uh, bantied around in running meat circles quite a bit, this idea of uh, the extent to which originalism is in Canada, uh, is, is, is a force to be reckoned with in Canada. And you reference uh, an article by Benjamin Oliphant in, uh, in your piece, and he talks about how there's, there's sort of this narrative uh, that you see often in Canadian mainstream media that uh, characterizes original as quote a conservative and aberrant American preoccupation that has been soundly and uniformly rejected in Canadian law end quote and you know specifically it's often juxtaposed against uh, the so-called living tree methodology uh, but but really what you're getting at here is that uh, originalism as as a methodology uh, has roots in Canada before sort of the rise of the so-called American conservative uh, legal movement that this is something. Uh, that, uh, that we can turn back to and we can see shared by legal scholars uh, across the spectrum. Is, 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 that a fair, uh, is that a fair assessment of what you're arguing?
1: That's certainly a fair assessment to me. I would put to you that originalism has been a way in which Canadians have thought about uh, our constitution uh, at least since Confederation in 1867. If you go back to the records uh, and the court cases of that early era, of those early years, Uh, you'll see that people took as a given this idea that uh, you had to look to the intents of Mm -hmm. the framers. That's just one form of originalism, something that we'll unpack uh, throughout our conversation. But at least this form of originalism, which is the search for the original intent of the framers, that's been manifest since the very beginning.
0: Yeah. There's echoes here of what you're arguing from uh, an article that then uh, Professor Bradley Miller, now Justice Bradley Miller of the Ontario Court of Appeal argued um, was close to a decade ago now, I believe it was around 2013, it was in any event before his appointment to the bench, where he takes the actual metaphor of the living tree uh, from the Edwards case and, and the Privy Council's famous invocation of the living tree. He actually makes the argument uh, that the reliance on the living tree is actually a form of public meaning originalism. Uh, and, and that the, the very, um, image of the living tree has been something that's been misused. So why don't we start talking a little bit now then about these different types of originalism, because you go through several different varieties of originalism in your article, and you specifically identify professor Scott as an originalist intent originalist, sorry, rather an original intent originalist and a framework originalist. And I think, you know, in part because of these, some of these articles by uh, scholars such as uh, Justice Miller, uh, in at least as, as these debates have unfolded in Canada, many are familiar with the first of these labels. We're used to the juxtaposition between original intent originalism and public meaning originalism. Uh, but this latter label is quite interesting, this idea of a framework originalism. And I don't think it's something that at least that I'm aware of has been uh, as, as thoroughly vetted in Canadian scholarship. So can you give us a brief overview of, of each of these schools of thought as you understand them, walk us through this idea of original intent, originalism and framework, originalism and whether they're, they're complementary, whether you see tensions between them.
1: Yeah, it's a very important question because one of the things that becomes rapidly clear when you talk about these different forms of originalism is that they can lead you to different interpretive outcomes. So let's begin with original intent, originalism. This is probably, as you mentioned, Chris, the form of originalism that a lot of members of the public have in their mind when they hear the term originalism. And for that reason, it's pretty much the easiest one to explain when we're looking for the original intent, what we mean by that is we're looking for, we're looking to divine the intentions of those who framed the constitution. Now it's a little bit more complex than that uh, but that's that's the basic gist of it so in the canadian context you know what we would be looking for is the framers of the 1867 act of the constitution act 1867 what was their intent in actually articulating a specific constitutional provision or the related question how would they decide a given constitutional dispute so that's one form of, of of originalism i'll actually juxtapose that Uh, with the form of originalism that is probably the most popular today in the United States, Mm -hmm. and that is public meaning originalism. So what public meaning originalists look for is the public meaning of constitutional text at the time each provision was framed and ratified. So they treat text as very important. And when I say they treat text is very important the key question that they're asking is how would the text of a constitutional provision have been understood by a reasonably educated person at the time of enactment and so you already see how that's different from original intentions originalism because really the focus is not on uh, who was divining and who is more specifically articulating the constitutional text, but how that text would have been reasonably understood Mm -hmm. at the time. And those two different elements might diverge in certain cases. You mentioned framework originalism. Now, framework originalism is quite interesting because a lot of originalists have made the argument, uh, and, and they've argued this quite strongly, that framework originalism actually isn't originalism. And so this is something we can talk about more. But for that reason, at least certain forms of framework originalism might seem very agreeable to your average Canadian Mm. constitutional theorist. Uh, In my mind, there's no reason why framework originalism is necessarily incompatible with the approach of the living tree. Uh, But what is it? Uh, The basic idea, again, easy to explain, the constitution sets forth a framework for governance. And in Jack Balkin's conception, again, he's the theorist with whom... Framework originalism is most commonly associated. That framework of the Constitution consists of different elements. You have rules, standards, and principles. Rules are very specific. Uh, these are kind of, uh, you know, clear textual rules about the operation of government, about the structure of the Constitution. There's not a lot of room for interpretive uh, disagreement here. But with standards and principles, Balkan's point is, uh, there are various terms of a constitution uh, that really can change with the times. Now, one of the points that I think I should get on the table is, in theory, at least, framework originalism uh, comprises a spectrum of views. Because if you see the constitution is more composed of rules than of standards and principles, that's going to not leave you with a lot of room for creative interpretation. If it's the flip, if you believe that the Constitution is mostly made up of vague and changing or abstract principles and standards, then that's going to get you to interpretive, um, an
0: interpretive methodology that looks a lot like living tree constitutionalism. And I, I do want to circle back to this um, and, and start to kind of apply some of these ideas to recent debates that have emerged in, uh, in Canadian constitutional law and, and we'll get to that I, you know just as you're speaking now it, it seems to me that there's um, uh, um a connection might even be drawn between this idea of a framework originalism and this concept of uh, constitutional architecture that has emerged in supreme court jurisprudence over the past decade or so but let's bring the conversation back to professor scott for a few okay. moments And walk us through how, in your view, Professor Scott embodied each of these strains of originalism that you identify in the paper. So original intent originalism and framework originalism. Right.
1: So in my mind, Scott was most clearly an intentionalist, a strict intentionalist. So this is that school of thought that I refer to as uh, original intentions originalism. Really, when he was interpreting the Constitution in a lot of his key essays and some of his speeches, uh, what he was looking for um, was how to divine the framers' original intentions. And he did this by looking at, by canvassing certain key bodies of evidence. So he looked in particular at the proceedings and resolutions of the Quebec and London conferences. These were the interprovincial conferences that led ultimately to the enactment of the Constitution Act 1867. And at these conferences, uh, the delegates published resolutions. Mm -hmm. These resolutions didn't always accord with the final text of the Constitution Act 1867, but Scott put a great deal of weight on these conference resolutions. He also looked at the confederation debates of the various provinces that joined up to form the Dominion in 1867. So when you had uh, in these colonial assemblies all the delegates, uh, or rather all of the uh, elected uh, parliamentarians arguing about the terms of confederation, he really would go into these uh, debates and try to see, based on these debates, how uh, the framers of the Constitution Act 1867 would have approached right. specific questions. And then lastly, uh, this one's quite interesting, and it makes sense when you think about it for a little bit, uh, he also looked to the actions of early parliaments after uh, 1867. And the reason for this, of course, was that various of the framers, uh, this should come as no surprise, went on to serve in very important roles uh, in the dominion parliament after 1867. And so if the dominion parliament a couple of years later disposed of a question in a certain way, then that was to Scott dispositive as to how a certain provision ought to be interpreted. Now, the one kind of addition that I'll make at this point, one point that I'll make is that, uh, Scott really did not always focus on the constitutional text as enacted. So mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, you know, you can read through the constitution act 1867. And of course you can make very textually based arguments as to the scope and mm-hmm. the intention uh, of the constitution act 1867, but very much basing that on the text as enacted. Scott didn't do that. Scott often thought that, for example, what Sir John A. Macdonald might have said uh, in a post Confederation debate in the Dominion Parliament that that might actually be better proof of uh, constitutional provisions' meaning from the Constitution Act, 1867, than the text read alone, uh, and that's an important point that I think uh, we we might come back to later. Uh, to finish off the answer, Scott was also yeah. a framework originalist. He definitely did believe that the constitution set forth an enduring framework. Uh, he was actually, uh, you know, I would say he was very faithful. He was very loyal to the constitution. And if you read his work, you'll often see these very kind of romantic allusions to the wisdom of the founding framers into the strength mm-hmm. of this um, constitutional framework that they had articulated. And in his mind, this was a constitution that could grow, that could adapt to the challenges of the 20th century. And the chief challenge lay not with the fact that uh, it had just been say, you know, a small group of men who had enacted this constitution in 1867, that wasn't the issue. For him, the issue was that the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which I mentioned earlier, which consistently Mm -hmm. found in favor of provincial power had actually subverted the vision of the framers of 1867.
0: Right. And, and and i want to pick up on a point that you you emphasized a couple of moments ago uh regarding professor scott's relationship uh with constitutional text um because you know when we're talking thinking about original uh, public meaning originalists as sort of that juxtaposition to original uh, originalists uh original public meaning originalists tend to place great emphasis on using the constitution's text as our starting point in constitutional interpretation and, and using that as understanding is how that text would have been understood at the time that it was enacted rather than focusing on the subjective intention of the framers. So when we're thinking about Professor Scott as an original intent originalist, uh, to what extent, in your view, did he embrace or reject textualism? Uh, You argue that we should think of Scott as an originalist. Does this mean that we should also think of him as a textualist, or do you think that label doesn't really apply to him?
1: I think it's a good question. Uh, You know, I think different people have different conceptions of textualism. I'll I'll set forth mine and then answer the question. So for me, originalism is an approach to constitutional interpretation. And textualism, which very much uh, can resemble certain forms of originalism, applies Mm -hmm. to the interpretation of Mm statutes. So in this paper, and actually I think Uh, I'm, you know, I can say this on a broader level, uh, that Scott didn't write that often on statutory issues. He really focused a lot more on the Constitution, and specifically on the division of powers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know that he necessarily had a cohesive vision of statutory interpretation. So that's the short answer to the question. I think the fuller answer to the question uh, is to say that Scott certainly believed that a focus on text alone, or even if we soften that statement, a paramount focus on text would be misleading. And so, you know, one one way to answer the question is to actually just give you a concrete example. It's an example that I focus on in the paper. So this is a provision that's very well known to people. Uh, So section 92.13 of the Constitution Act eighteen sixty seven, states that the provinces may exclusively make laws in relation to property and civil rights in the province. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody who's quite text-based in their approach might have, you know, certain views on what property and civil rights refer to, you know how broad is that category how narrow is that category and these are debates that have been very important in canadian constitutional history and debates that were uh, waged quite vigorously actually during the great depression mm-hmm. now scott didn't focus too much on the actual meaning of the term property and civil rights in interpreting section ninety two thirteen. what he did was he actually didn't look that much to the constitution act 1867 he looked to the resolutions And in uh, looking to the resolutions, he noted that the resolutions had qualified provincial jurisdiction over property and civil rights by adding these words, accepting those portions thereof assigned to the general parliament. So in Scott's view, you know, this earlier iteration of the clause, which had effectively split property and civil rights between the national parliament and between the provincial legislatures, that was very dispositive of the original intent, and I think the response of a public meaning originalist would be, "Well, look, that was that might have played a key role in the drafting process, but that text isn't in the finally enacted text of the of the Constitution Act, 1867." And so that's a, a very clear example, I think, where uh, this debate as to which element of constitution interpretation constitutional interpretation to prioritize. It really isn't abstract or philosophical. It will lead you to a very different concrete outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. And and I, I wanna drill down on that in just a moment. Uh, you know, this, this idea of, um, you know, talking about uh, how we use the text, uh, and whether we use the text as a starting point and how that can impact uh, outcomes in constitutional interpretation. As, and as a segue into that, because a lot of those issues have emerged in the discussion as we've noted about Uh, so-called constitutional architecture or so-called unwritten constitutional principles. But as sort of a, you know, as a way of setting the stage for that discussion, I want to return for a moment to this idea of Professor Scott as being a framework originalist. And I think it's especially interesting because in one lecture that he gave in 1959, uh, he posited that the structure of the 1867 Constitution Act, quote, incorporated principles of civil liberties and human rights embedded in English constitutional law, end quote. And, and this is an argument that has often been used in support of the so-called implied Bill of Rights and that whole line of jurisprudence that came out between the 30s and the 50s. But it's interesting because this particular lecture by Professor Scott uh, was later picked up on in a 2004 dissent in The Queen and Demers by uh, Justice LaBelle. And uh, and he he notes that uh, he he uh posits that professor Scott kind of puts forward this argument that certain principles found in the in the United Kingdom in the 1867 Constitution Act as we've said incorporated these principles of similarities and human rights and and specifically he suggests that the documents that professor Scott was referring to were uh Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights of 1689 and and the Belfort Declaration the Statute of Westminster and so on and so forth and and this is an argument that has been sort of uh re-emerged in recent years. Uh, there's a similar argument that um, Professor Ryan Alfred, a good friend of Readymead has presented uh, on occasion, including in his recent book, Seven Absolute Rights. So I, I wanna ask, you know, as we think about these debates and as they are evolving in Canada and re-emerging, um, do you think that this kind of argument in favor of a so-called implied bill of rights or this idea of embedded constitutional rights outside of the charter is consistent with that framework originalist outlook that you describe in your article
1: right it's a good question i mean a couple of responses the first one is that when we're talking about a coherent theory of originalism in the canadian context and in my mind no scholar has kind of come out and traced out all the contours of what canadian originalism might look like but my point uh, would be that any such theory of the canadian constitution would have to deal in a very forthright way with a preamble to the Constitution Act 1867. And that is where we're sourcing uh, mm-hmm. basically this idea of the implied Bill of Rights. So I'll just read it out. Uh, this is you know, basically the, the start of the Constitution Act 1867. Mm-hmm. Whereas the provinces of Canada, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have expressed their desire to be federally united into one dominion under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. So to answer your question, it's not just framework originalism that I think would look to the preamble Mm -hmm. and say, well, that's important, right? We need to obviously incorporate things like unwritten constitutional values. We need to incorporate this idea of the uh, British Constitution in all of its richness Mm and all of its aspects. That is a piece of constitutional text That all forms of originalism uh, need to kind of address in a fourth right way and to maybe answer to give a hypothesized answer to that question uh, i don't see any problem with a strong view of originalism in the canadian context admitting uh, that there was much outside of the four corners of the text of the constitution act 1867 that the framers cared about Uh, the Constitution Act 1867, in my mind, uh, wasn't just important because of, say, the division of powers, uh, rules that it set forth, uh, but it really was supposed to uh, have the possibility, at least, of addressing these key rights questions as well, because the British Constitution had before the Constitution uh, of 1867 did. Uh, now, the second response to that question is you know, a lot of this debate has actually become not completely moot, but relatively moot since 1982 and mm-hmm. the enactment of the Charter. Uh, and you know, it's a delight to actually talk to you about division of powers, jurisprudence, and Constitution Act 1867, because I think for your average Canadian law student, the Constitution almost begins with, with 1982. Uh, but the point I would uh, put to you is that an originalist reading of the Constitution Act 1867, before the advent of the Charter, could be entirely consistent with a broad, strong, and robust view of rights, of individual rights. F.R. Scott himself uh, was a very strong proponent of civil liberties. He argued the case, Roncarelli versus Du uh, he was one of the key proponents for actually uh, a written bill of rights, something like the charter. Uh, but the point is that he saw many ways to make the argument that the Constitution Act 1867, before the enactment of the charter, was consistent in an originalist conception with broad rights guarantees.
0: And this is, of course, you know, the, the, the issue has, has reemerged. Um, you, you correctly note that uh, many law students today don't really look to constitutional history before 1982. Um, certainly most you know, first-year constitutional law courses talk about the division of powers, but that's more or less uh, where it often tends to end. But this whole uh, recent phenomenon where we're seeing uh, increasing reliance on Section 33 of the Charter, this so-called notwithstanding clause, has, has kind of re, uh, has brought this discussion back into the fore about the role of, uh, again, so-called uh, unwritten principles uh, whether or not there are embedded guarantees and this is something that professor alford addresses in his book but you know to be fair for a moment to uh to the skeptics of the implied bill of rights and and to raise sort of the uh the argument uh there is of course that uh the framework of the constitution was rooted in this idea in the very least of either parliamentary sovereignty or if you want to use this more kind of dicene concept you know parliamentary supremacy and so this really does seem to uh be uh, an issue of tension that we see uh emerging within recent case law and we can see cases that are sort of setting the stage for uh the eventual question that's going to be posed within the context of an invocation of the notwithstanding clause and it's going to be interesting to see what happens regarding whether or not uh you know to see where the so-called originalist outcome uh is is going to emerge so that's where I wanna kind of segue as we round off this discussion is uh, because you talk about uh, how Professor Scott believed that the 1867 act was capable of adapting to new and emerging constitutional questions. And so let's just do a bit of a a fun thought experiment here to think about uh, how Professor Scott might have responded to some of these big issues that are emerging in constitutional law today. So as an example, where do you think he would have landed on the question of, again, so-called unwritten principles as they were discussed in the Supreme Court's 2021 City of Toronto ruling. Because you can see there, there are very clear cleavages uh, in the court about uh, the extent to which unwritten principles can be relied on to uh, potentially invalidate uh, statutes. And and many of those uh, in the majority, some of whom may be more comfortable with the originalist label, uh, than others, certainly would, would point to, uh, I think, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty as calling for, um, calling for a more reduced role of uh, unwritten principles. And yet, those in the minority as well would certainly claim that they are uh, upholding the intention, in some ways, of the framers uh, in, in giving effect to uh, the, the, the Constitution as it was, uh, uh, in, in terms of the objects that it was intended to pursue. So where do you think Professor Scott, would have inserted himself in that debate?
1: Now, that's a very hard question. <laughs> if I had to guess, I would say that he would have been in favor of a very expansive and broad view of unwritten constitutional principles. But I do think I need to qualify that point with a couple other remarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is that Scott was, uh, you know, what I term to be a normative originalist. And, uh, you know, he didn't see originalism just as method. He believed strongly that the results of originalist uh, analysis in his in his case were good. They were good for uh, the dominion. Uh, and he believed that there was a lot of work to do in convincing Canadians from coast to coast that the results of originalist interpretation were good. And so, you know, I say that he might've approached this question based on his own normative priors with a view that unwritten constitutional uh, values are broad and expansive, but I think he also would've asked this fundamental question of, you know, what is the Canadian viewpoint on these unwritten constitutional principles and is a constitutional amendment or at least constitutional clarification uh, in order. He believed that the constitution was all of ours and it wasn't just uh, to be determined by, well, in his case, a distant court that is the JCPC, uh, but really by judges alone. Uh, And the second point that I would uh, add to the table is that Scott had a particular vision of originalist interpretation. And what I'm doing in the paper is I'm making the argument that, you know, his philosophy of the constitution was consistent with originalism, but I'm not making the argument that uh, all of his arguments would be accepted by, you know, various types of originalists to be accurate. Uh, So certainly if you're a public meaning originalist, I think there's a lot to disagree with in Mm -hmm. Scott's vision of the constitution. And I think- Mm -hmm. Uh, to the extent that you think there is a correct or uh, isn't a correct outcome from originalist interpretation, then that's going to kind of shape your uh, view of the question, right? So if you believe that originalist interpretation can result in one correct outcome, then it doesn't really matter what Scott would have had to say on the issue. Uh, He either got it right or he got it wrong. So those are kind of the two caveats that I would provide.
0: No, it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, discussion to be sure, and it's and it's one that you know no doubt will will continue. And and uh, I want to thank you for the work that you've done here with this article, and just kind of bringing Professor Scott back into the conversation, because uh, certainly a lot of what he uh, discussed, his views of the Constitution, have uh, have significance uh, for these debates. And uh, and you can you know there there are a whole other. series of topics that we can go on especially when we think about how professor right. scott would have responded to emerging ideas uh, perhaps you know as a follow up uh, interview sometime we'll have to talk about uh, how professor scott might have you know as a normative originalist as you say might have responded to these ideas of uh, of common good constitutionalism and how that has sort of emerged as a sort of um, alternative to originalism as, as, a, as a critic of originalism. But, but Preston, I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast and, uh, and for contributing this paper to the Dicey Law Review. And we look forward to having you back on in due course to continue this discussion. Thanks so much, Chris, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to the principles constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for updates on the exciting events that our student chapters have planned for the upcoming school year. So long for now.